The Alliance for Innovation and Transformation is an alliance of paysetters, forward-thinking higher education CEOs committed to leading by example to show other higher education institutions how to innovate and transform their organizations in the face of unprecedented challenge and change. They offer learning, development, and networking opportunities focused on customer-driven value, innovation, transformation skills, and techniques, and approaches to help colleges and other organizations achieve the long-term sustainability necessary for their survival. AFITHigherEd.com is where you can check them out. AFITHigherEd.com. Three higher ed authors, 100 plus college and university presidents, dozens of actionable insights for academic leaders. Commencement, the beginning of a new era in higher education is now available on Amazon. Welcome back, everybody. It's your time to add up on the Ed Up Experience podcast, where we make education your business. Dr. Joe Salustio, back on another episode. You know we've passed like 560 of these suckers. We've been downloaded 250,000 times, now on the march to 300,000. We think we'll be the first podcast to hit that uh, type of number. We've interviewed over 200 college and university presidents at this point. You know the numbers. I post them on social media, and I tell them to you. But we're going to have a little bit of a broader conversation today, I think. We'll talk about higher ed a little bit, but we're going to talk about people or we're going to talk about workplaces. And I've got somebody uh, from a company near and dear to my heart that's along for the ride with me because I've attended uh, their uh, conference the last two years. Here she is. She's Richa Batra, and she is the vice president and general manager at Anthology. Richa, what's going on? Hi, Joe. Thanks for having me. And I'm especially excited for this particular conversation because I do manage a large team. So I'm excited to be able to learn from Tony today. Well, that brings up a question. And how large of a team do you manage, yeah. Richa, so that we can understand how, how much uh, <laughs> Tony's answers will affect the people on it that, are, that are reporting to you? Absolutely. I have a team of 1,200 um, throughout the year. And since we are higher ed K-12 focused, we will double in size over the summer in preparation for back to school. Holy crap. That's a lot of people. <laughs> it is a lot of people. That's, so. a, that's a lot of people. You, you, yeah. you got to know what you're doing if you're managing that many people. That's pretty incredible. Well, here he is, ladies and gentlemen. I want to bring him in right now because I think we've got a lot to talk about. He is Tony Bond, and he's the Chief Diversity and Innovation Officer at Great Place to Work. Tony, how are you? I'm great. How are you, Joe? Uh, oh, I am Lachlan. well. Nice to be here. Yeah, we're we're well. We're we're we were waiting to talk to you, Richard and I. We we met earlier in the week, and we're like, "How are we going to grill him? What are we going to grill him on? Can we corner him?" We know we're not going to do any of that, but we were excited <laughs> to talk to you because there's so much going on at your organization. So, for our audience that hasn't maybe heard of Great Place to Work, just level set for us. What is Great Place to Work? What do you do? How do you do it? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, so I get this question all the time. Where do you work? I say Great Place to Work. What's the name of the company? That's actually the name of the company. And so we consider ourselves the, uh, the global authority on workplace culture. And the reason I say that is we survey over 10 million employees every single year, over 10,000 companies in over 98 different countries. And we've been doing that for over 30 years. And so we've gathered quite a bit of insight on what it means to be a great place to work and what leaders can do to create a great workplace. And so that's what we do. So our mission is to create a great place we work for all, no matter where you work. If you're in the executive suite, if you're on the front line of, or in the shop floor, or if you work from the comfort of your home and your home office a bedroom, we want it to be a great place to work for everyone. So that is who we are. What, uh, before I hand it over to Richard, because I know she's waiting with bated breath to get to you, but 
what makes a place a great place to work? Does that yeah. seem like an obvious question, but I have to ask it. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a great question. Uh, over, I mentioned over 30 years of research, really what we found is that a great place to work is one where employees trust the people they work for, they have pride in the work that they do, and they enjoy the people they work with. Ah. Three different dimensions. That really is what creates a great place to work. And there are a lot of things underneath those three, but those are the three main areas of what makes a great place to work. Rich, I know you've been waiting. Now, let's go. I know it's my chance. I have been waiting, so I've been excited for this conversation. And I think, you know, especially in this current economic climate, what we're seeing in tech, how can a company still be focused on employees and being a great place to work when also driving to financial outcomes and having to do cuts? Like, what are you seeing that can that can create that balance? Yeah, that's a really good question. So those three things I mentioned, uh, really trusting the people that you work for, and that trust is made up by, if I feel like my leader is credible, my leader kind of understands how to get us to where we need to be. My leader is fair. And then my leader demonstrates respect. Those three things as a leader, if I show up that way every single day, it builds a high level of trust, which works in good times and in bad times. And so if I'm having to make cuts and letting people go, if my, if my people feel like I did that in a way that I, it was my last resort, you know, I, I tried all the other things I had to do and this is the last resort. Also, if I'm engaging people in that process, and creating a full understanding of why we're making those decisions. So if, if we're living that way and we're illustrating trust and how we operate every single day, I feel like that's the key to making it a great place to work, whether it's a great time or, or not so great time. So uh, leaders can do that, but being fully transparent, leaders being able open and, and honest about the things that their decisions they're making, exposing themselves to people so that people have an opportunity to ask me questions, those natural things that we know create great leaders hold true in times like this. And so hopefully those are some examples of, you know, what, what it takes to navigate the terrain, the, the territory that we're in right now and how to make it a great place to work. Nailed it. I thought that was really good guidance. And I mean, we've heard this statistic as well before that, um, people leave the people that they report to as opposed to, to companies. So I think what I'm hearing from you is even if there's disruption going on within organizations, the person that you report into can make and change that culture for you and, and make that environment still a great place to work. Totally, totally true. And that's the challenge of a great place to work. How do you make it consistently across the organization so that every single leader shows up that way? And it's not a hard, not, not an easy thing to do, especially as you get larger at scale, it's a really complicated thing to do. So that's what makes these great places to work pretty special. There's a lot in that when you talk about how do you get everybody or every leader in your organization to to do or to, to represent themselves in the same way. And engagement, disengagement, um, turnover. I don't know. There's I, I am a one person that believes that one person can and, and you probably do too, Tony and, and Richard, but one person can affect a culture. It, mm -hmm. it could be one person that affects it positively, a person that affects it negatively. And then you take that and times that by the number of people that you might uh, be involved with or work with or, you know, report to and so on. And there's just a lot of variables in that of, of you know, and so there has to be almost this unsaid commitment to making a place a great place to work. So almost like an honor system where there you, almost others have to hold you accountable and eliminate negativity when it pops up because that's going to affect you and your workplace 
the the what the way you feel about your workplace, right? I and mean, there's so many variables right. to consider. Yeah, so important. So that's why it first starts. It has to be a shared aspiration at the very top of the organization because if it's not there, there's not a shared aspiration and alignment at the very top. All the other things you try may fall flat, and so you start there, and then the question becomes, you know, how does it, how does it get cascade down throughout the whole organization? It's sort of a top-down, bottom-up approach that needs to happen, and so you really have to engage your employees because it's everyone's responsibility to make it a great place to work, not just leaders. There is an obligation and a responsibility from employees to make it a great place to work. So, shared aspiration at the top, engaging everyone, creates this whole system that ends up being a great place to work. Let me ask you about your title. I found it really interesting because I, you know, I was getting excited to meet with you and it was the chief diversity and innovation officer. And typically when you look throughout industry, those are two separate people. There's your chief innovation officer that's primarily in, involved with technology because you think innovation and I think a lot of brains go to technology and, and, and so on. And then you see chief diversity officers that are focused on uh, people or, you know, um, uh, you know, increasing diversity among staff, amongst faculty in higher education in particular. How mm -hmm. did that come to be? And talk to me about your role and why those two things are so importantly connected with, uh, with your role at Great Place to Work. Yeah, I love the question, Joe. So uh, probably around six years ago, um, the title was Chief Innovation Officer, and you kind of describe what that means. And then uh, our CEO really challenged us because even part of what we do is recognize companies for being a great place to work. So we have the 100 best companies to work for in partnership with Fortune. And so when Michael Bush took over the organization, he sort of looked at that list and looked at the top companies and just really said, I know people who work there and it's not necessarily a great place to work for them. And he just kind of went down through the list. And so it changed the mantra of what it means to be a great place to work. He forced us to say that it's got, it has to be a great place to work for all. So if we say for all, then that really gets you into the diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging conversation. And at the time, Chief Innovation Officer, we felt like, you know what, the biggest innovation challenge that exists right now is around diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, creating a great place to work for all. So it simply made sense. That's one of our biggest innovation challenges. Let's bring that into your title. And so that's how that whole piece came to be, kind of an, uh, a conversation that Michael and I had together. My role is really, uh, it continues to be innovation. So how do we evolve our methodology and, and make sure that we're doing what we need to do? But on top of that, we know that DEIB is front and center for most organizations. And so a lot of my time is spent helping organizations figure out how to become a great place to work for all, you know, how to innovate, how to create some breakthrough ideas when it comes to diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. And a lot of the focus right now is around really four areas. We, we think in terms of equity and representation, how do we create opportunities for people, equity and opportunity, equity and compensation? We know that pay, pay isn't fair across the organization and also equity and well-being. Because over the last several years, we really have realized how important well-being is. And so that's a big focus area over the last two years in those, those four areas and helping organizations navigate those areas. I like your style, dude. <laughs> Richa. I love it. Um, no, along the lines of DEIB, I think this is one of my key questions. You know, I'm on the committee within Anthology. Let me just ask you, how can uh, institutions, organizations, and companies create DEIB where it's making an impact in the organization and it's not perceived as a checklist item? What are some guidance that you have for us? 
Yeah, I think the first thing is you want to really want to scan the environment and get, and get a sense of where are there inequities. And so I have to look at all the things I do, how I hire people, how I promote people, how we uh, incent people, how we care for people when they need to be cared for, whether there's some discrepancies in in-office experiences and remote experiences. So I look across the board and find out where are their opportunity areas. And that's a great starting point. And then just like to be a great place to work requires this shared aspiration. The same with diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. At the very top of the organization, we have to share this aspiration to create this culture that creates a sense of belonging for everyone. And then we also have to make sure that we have the voices of the people that we're trying to serve. And so a lot of companies you'll hear it's pretty commonplace to have employee resource groups. That's a way to tap into the voices of all of your different uh, people representing different demographics within your organization. And those conversations kind of get a sense of how we can make not only make the experience better, but how can we leverage these different employee groups to help us drive innovation, help us drive productivity, help us grow our organization. So all those things combined, I think that creates this kind of a generative conversation that leads to some strategies that you can take going forward. Epic. Um, I have a few follow-up questions from that as well. I mean, when many of us are in hybrid work environments, some of us are still in fully remote how do you create that sense of belonging or what have you seen that's driving sense of belonging in global and remote workforces? Yeah, I love that. And I think that's going to continue to be a challenge. It's like a clear sense of purpose. And so I'm doing my job, whether I'm doing it from my home, if I'm doing it in a way that I feel like I'm, I'm achieving something larger than just my task, my job truly has a purpose. That helps me create the sense of belonging no matter where I am. If my leadership can make expectations really clear and I have a clear view of what we're trying to accomplish, that's really, really important. But I think one of the things that I find that's critical to this conversation is this whole development learning. I feel like I'm getting better at what I do. What I do is valuable, but I'm also getting better at what I do every single day. That also helps facilitate the sense of belonging. So there's so many different ways that you can do it as a leader, but I think what we found that when we were moving to the virtual world, the leaders that reached out, they helped the employees feel like they were operating from a sense of purpose. Uh, they really focused on their well-being. They gave them a sense that they were learning and getting better at what they're doing. They created the sense of autonomy. You know, what you produce is important, but how you do it, there's some flexibility around it. All those things probably are key to contributing to a sense of belonging in a virtual world. Um, and I would also say that probably we're meeting more in the virtual world than we did in the physical world. I was going to ask you, Tony, for us to be uh, together. And it also kind of gives everyone a voice. You know, when you're talking, you can't have multiple people talking at the same time on Zoom. So technology has worked in our favor, I think, in a way of creating that sense of belonging and connection. Did you just say that? Because I tried to interrupt you. Well yeah. done. <laughs> well done, Tony. Uh, well, I, 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 that was well placed. I have to say, because I, I was I was going to lightly and politely interrupt you and say um, that what what you're saying is hitting home. Because I one of the I, I, what I felt was a huge phenomenon at, in myself for and I was managing people remotely, obviously during COVID, is this the shift that I had to make from a reactive to a proactive. Uh, check-in with my employees, where when I was in the office, as I am now, a lot of things come to me. Employees mm -hmm. come to me and something, you know, I'm going to get my water bottle filled up and two people catch me on my way to go somewhere and everything kind of revolved around me as a leader. And 
when you're remote or you're dealing with employees who are um, in different areas than you, how much pro more proactivity there would have to be in scheduling time to check in on these people and scheduling time to find out what's going on because not everything was coming to you as easily as it would when you were in person. I think a lot of people struggled with that shift mm -hmm. and time would go by before they'd check in with an employees and those employees checked out. Right. Yeah. And almost changes also kind of the role as a leader. It was, especially doing early in pandemic, it was more of a centralized coordination. I have to make sure that I'm coordinating things and moving the pieces around and knowing what's going on with people, but a little bit of more of a decentralized decision-making, you know, people were kind of on their own and getting things done. And so I think it challenged the way we lead to a great extent, more of a centralized coordination and communicating with people, decentralized decision-making mm -hmm. uh, and things got done really well. So if I'm on, if I'm listening to this call, this call, this podcast, I see I'm saying call, look at that. I'm listening to this podcast and um, I'm thinking, well, I'm a leader and my place is a great place to work. I mean, I'm listening to these people talk, Joe, Richa and Tony and boy, I'm, this, this is my, this is my institution. This is my company. It's a great place to work. And uh, how do I know that for sure? How, how do you, how do you work with great place to work to find out if that's actually true or not? What's the process that mm -hmm. exists? What's the processing? It's really uh, gathering data, the voices of the employees. So we survey. I mentioned how many people we survey every single year. We survey people and we have different statements that tie to those dimensions of being a great place to work. The dimensions of trust that I mentioned, you know, credibility, fairness, and respect. We also survey people around what is the level of pride you have in the work that you do? And also, how does it feel to work with the other people in your organization? You know, the sense of camaraderie. And so we survey that those things through 60 or so statements. And then we also have benchmarks. And so we've collected data for many different organizations across different industries, across different sizes. So if I'm working at company X that has a thousand employees and I'm in the manufacturing sector, I can see how well I'm matching up based on being a great place to work to others like me or the best of the, the segment that I'm in. So that, that's really how we do it. It's no secret that there are considerable challenges facing higher education right now. The teaching and learning methods of the past are becoming obsolete and time-worn processes have all but lost their effectiveness. No longer will the take no action or move forward with incremental change mindsets sustain operations. Colleges are closing their doors at an alarming rate and some are teetering on the edge of existence. It's time to join the Alliance, the Alliance for Innovation and Transformation, better known as AFIT. Check them out at afithighered.com. That's A-F-I-T, highered.com. If you want to be at the forefront of technology and innovation in education, it's time to look at AFIT. You know that the world of higher education is experiencing evolutions and revolutions. You want to be part of the progress. Commencement, the beginning of a new era in higher education with insights from more than 100 college and university presidents will show you how. Get your copy of Commencement, the beginning of a new era in higher education now on Amazon right away. We think you're going to love it. It's amazing. Tough to hear the truth sometimes. You can't handle the truth. <laughs> It is tough to hear the truth. I give an example. Uh, even as we speak, and we, we've been doing a lot of research around well-being because that's really, really important. You hear a lot of people talking about it. 
Uh, 75% of the executives feel like people are managing things pretty well. There's a kind of a great sense of well-being. While our data tells us that one out of every four employees feel like they're burn, they're burning out or burnt out. So there's a disconnect. So the data comes back. I may have one view of how things are happening, but the truth comes in the data. And so yeah, it's sometimes hard to hear those things. And, and to add to that, um, yeah, Joe, I would love to be able to ask a little bit more here. When we talk about health and wellness and well-being, driving company performance, what is your guidance to either um, university, college leaders in education or companies to be able to set that tone? Because I think sometimes it's conflicting that we want to give our employees unlimited vacation and time off, but here are the results of the business that we need to perform to and people higher up may be working those round the clock hours and on, on days off. What is your guidance in setting the right tone and making sure our employees know that their well-being is the priority? I think it's important uh, as leaders to share stories. Like we're not immune to any of this. And so to the degree that we can share stories and, and share the realness of that we, you know, our, I guess human, the human side of us, creates the conditions where it's okay for people to have that conversation in the workplace. But it's hard for a lot of leaders to do that, you know, to be open and transparent around their own challenges that they're experiencing, especially over the last couple of years, you know, with the pandemic environment. So I, I, I feel like that's key. The stories I can tell, being open and honest about how I'm experiencing things creates this sense of comfort and kind of psychological safety for other people to share. Then it becomes uh, something that we can talk about. And it's okay to talk about it. And, and along those along those same lines, I mean, obviously, we have seen high, incredibly high levels of attrition, employee attrition within companies as well as in higher higher education over the last few years. The the having employees focus on wealth, uh, wellness, well being, is that are there metrics that correlate to that and lower attrition? I think there's metrics to coordinate correlates uh, overall, even before this happened, the, the pandemic to lower attrition when you create a great place to work. So to give an example, if I'm looking in terms of hospitality, uh, the average turnover rate is like 52% in that industry. But within a great place to work, <clears throat> the best company is around 24%. So by doing those things to create a great experience for people every single day, by uh, having people know that they're working for a leader that they totally trust, they have pride in what they're doing, they're connected to the people they work with. It doesn't matter the scenario. Back in 2008 during the recession, when a lot of companies were struggling, great places to work, companies did really well. And, and so I think that's the key because if it's not the pandemic, it'll be something else coming up in the future. But if the, the foundation is to create this great place to work, and it becomes pretty resilient uh, overall. So I don't, hopefully that answers your question around attrition. No, I, ab yeah. absolutely. I think that's, that's incredibly helpful. I mean, we know that there's financial impact when we um, lower the number of attrition and the turnover and the cost of training and, and um, onboarding. So I think that's incredibly helpful. Yeah. And, and the reality right now is we did a global study, a normative study, only less than 50% of the people are working or experiencing trust building behaviors in the workplace. So there's huge opportunity out there. And then even when you put on top of that, some sort of a crisis situation, then it becomes a really, really a, a problem. Um, I'm thinking, I'm thinking that's, a, that's usually a good sign. 
uh, that I'm thinking, I've done so many of these episodes, sometimes I get robotic with my questions. And I do want to recognize that this is the part of the episode where I uh, poke my guest co-host to stop asking better questions than the host, just for the record, uh, Richard, but you know, (laughs) we'll talk about that later. Uh, But I do want to just recognize that there's a certification to become a great place to work. And you know, for those listening that go, you know what, this sounds pretty cool. I want to, I want to be certified or recognized as a great place to work. Can you tell us about that process? What that looks like? How that goes? What's involved? Mm-hmm. So, uh, any organization wants to be certified, it's uh, it's, it's a fairly easy process. So basically, you survey your employees, and in turn, if seven out, let's say seven out of ten people come back and say it's a great place to work, so it's based on those statements that I mentioned earlier. If seven out of ten people overall say it's a great place to work. Then you become a certified great place to work. And with that, you can display things on your website. You know, you can show that you're a certified great place to work. And it means a lot, especially with people looking for jobs. That's one of the criteria they're looking you're, that, that, that they're actually using. Is it a certified great place to work? And then once you become certified, it opens you up to other opportunities, like our list that I mentioned, the 100 best companies to work for list. The best of the certified uh, companies are eligible to be uh, recognized in those lists. And so that's really how the process works. What you get with that certification is also data that helps you understand the workplace experience. You get both quantitative data and qualitative data. You know, two of the things we ask people, what makes this a great place to work? What would make it a better place to work? And so all that information, not only is for recognition, but it's to help you make your workplace even better. Um, and depending on your engagement, the great place to work, you may get a culture coach that helps you understand the data and helps you come up with some ideas on how to make things better. So that hopefully that explains the process. Uh, simply put, seven out of 10 people say it's a great place to work, then you're certified. So what happens, let's say that there's the opposite side of the coin here. What happens when four out of 10 people say that you're a great place to work? That mm-hmm. itself is an indication that you've got a ton of work to do, or does great place to work come in and advise you and say, hey, guys, th- this, this is where you need to go. Here's what the results were. Here's what we recommend. Is there an advisory process or consulting process involved in that, or is it kind of go figure it out and come back when you get to seven? Yeah, there are some advisory. Some of the insights are built into the technology that we provide for the surveying. So you get the results, but also there's some insights that are built into that as well as you have uh, the opportunity to speak with culture coaches who are very fluent in what it takes to become a great place to work and how to close some of those gaps. And I think the key is if I'm like four out of 10 people are saying it's a great place to work, uh, what people are looking for is number one, you asked me for the feedback, you showed appreciation for the feedback that I gave you, you're giving me the sense that you're gonna work with me to make things better. And so you find those areas, you can't turn everything around overnight, well, what are the key areas that you can leverage? And so you start there and you start working on these things and great place to work can help you figure out what those are and give you some insights on how to leverage those areas. But yeah, to answer your question, you get insights, you get also get support uh, to make things better. Amazing. Richard, you got more? I do. I have, I have tons of questions. I, well, you have mentioned a lot about leadership or management training, coaching. For, for organizations that have the certification and designation, how much money are they investing in leadership and development compared to organizations that are not um, one of the great places to work? Hmm. That's a great question. I don't know if we have actual the, 
numbers on what, what's, what's being invested, but we do know that there's a strong focus and an investment in these leaders because uh, here's the thought, no matter what you're trying to do, I believe innovation sort of lives and dies at the middle of the organization, like middle management. And often they're the last ones to be engaged in whatever you're trying to do. You know, it starts at the top, you do a lot of grassroots stuff, and then it all of a sudden it comes to the middle manager's uh, plate. And so I find that these organizations that are doing a great job are heavily investing in middle management um, because that they're, they're high enough to have a bird's eye view, but close enough to have a worm's eye view. And so that's really where things are really made, uh, the experience is made. So there's quite a bit of investment in leadership development. Uh, quantifying that, I, we don't really have those metrics, but I know that it's, it's a top priority. I, I love hearing that. I have spent a lot of time in training and, um, you know, have spent time professional development within myself and then within our team. So it, it's great to be able to hear that feedback. Yeah. And sometimes it goes beyond training. We all have gone to like amazing training yes. events. And then once we leave, it's like the further you're away from the training, it sort of dries up. Like you were in the lake, you were immersed. And then when you walk away, it's kind of gone. And so the question is how to help these leaders in the flow of work that they're doing understand how to make things better, how to make things a great place to work. So sometimes it's formal training and other times it's just helping me understand in the flow of work, what are the, some of the things that I can do to create a great experience? That's great. Thank, thank you for sharing. Mm -hmm. How do you scale your culture? That's one of the parts of your website that I really loved to, to read about. It was, you know, because there, we're talking rapid growth, right? And one of the, um, segments of higher education or or higher ed adjacent segments is ed tech and ed tech is just exploding and it's i'm not saying this because then uh or rich is on the phone she works for anthology which is a massive company and they've they, i don't know four or five billion dollar organization now um but but scaling is hard and it's hard to maintain culture when change happens so fast right uh, and and this can happen in traditional higher education institutions or any business to the pandemic forced higher education to really adapt in a lot of ways. And we found that we weren't ready and now we're catching up and things are breaking and having to be remade and change is coming fast and furious because the student is defining how they want to learn and educational institutions are now trying to figure out what that is and how they can offer it as fast. And so between ed tech and the evolution of higher education, there's just so much change scaling culture a positive one is challenging amidst change because people don't like change tony i don't know if you know that if your your uh your your uh, stats say that but any any leader knows that sometimes within the change learning curve as it were there's just your early adopters and then there's the anchor and you got to pull them along and then it's hard to move that whole group of people to a place that you want them to be when you scale and, and your business is growing can you talk a little bit about that and what culture scaling means and, and how to do it and you know what organizations are saying about it yeah that's a really great question so i feel like uh change management is a little bit different now there's like it's before where you would sort of implement change and you freeze things and then you would back to a stable state i don't know if that's possible anymore so change is kind of constant and if you have the conditions of a great place to work we know that that makes people more agile and so Part of what you want to do is engage people. If you're trying to change, you want to get engaged as many people as possible into the innovation effort. And we have sort of this innovation velocity ratio, which basically measures, you know, to what degree 
do people feel like they're involved in innovation? Because when they are involved in innovation, then almost nine out of 10 people are saying that they quickly adapt to changes. And as well as they look forward to coming to work. So that's one way to scale things is to involve people uh, in the changes that you're trying to create. The other thing is uh, it's, if I can touch as many people as I can every single day over a long enough period of time, the whole culture is gonna change and be what you want it to be. So it doesn't happen overnight, but if I can be consistent in surveying my people, getting a sense of how they're experiencing the workplace, focus on getting as many leaders as I can bought into the type of culture I'm trying to create, have a really strong mission. It becomes more than just something on the wall, but it becomes a way that we make decisions. You know, our values become how we make decisions around here. All those things are kind of the bedrock for making the strong culture that you want. So it's more than just having values on the wall, but that's how I make my decisions. On top of that, I engage as many people as I can in the strategy and the innovations that I'm trying to create. And then also I try to get as many managers, and it may not be everyone at, at one point, but I have some leaders within the organization who get it. And they're this kind of uh, displaying the behaviors that I really want everyone to display. How do I recognize those age, uh, those leaders? How do I lift them up? as an example of what we're trying to do. So I've sort of rambled and gave you a, a lot of things, but I think all those pieces are kind of important to create the culture you want, but also to make people ready for change, whatever it might be. The great thing about this podcast is you get to ramble as long as you want. <laughs> as long as you want, Tony. Richard, do you have any uh, additional questions before we wrap up with Tony? You know, uh, one question that's been on my mind when we talk about DEIB, how do we, or how are companies in institutions measuring the success of that? Because for everything else, we're measuring based off of KPIs and financial measurements. How should we be looking at the success of DEIB in our organizations? Yeah, I think uh, those four things I mentioned. So number one is we look at the representation within the organization. We look at the opportunities that are being created for people and what is the equity like within those areas. And you can look at pay as well, but then also, the survey, when you're, there are statements within our survey that really gets to the sense of belonging. So you want to look at, if you survey all of your employees, what's the difference between the people having the greatest experience and the people who are having the worst experience? And how does that play out across demographics? And if I'm finding that women scores are significantly lower than others, then that gives me a strategy, a, a, an area for me to focus on within my strategy. And so I start to measure the experience that those particular people are having over a period of time. So those are, I think those are some key numbers to look at. Um, the experience people are having, my representation numbers, my opportunities I'm being created and who's moving into those opportunities, and just the overall sense of belonging that people are giving us through surveys. I think those are probably some foundational things, metrics to look at. Tony, I'm here taking some notes because I think these are great, very specific action items I can take. And I think everyone listening to the podcast uh, can too. So thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. I got to admit, I did come up with one more question because I don't want to let you go without, actually I have three more, but two of them are to kind of close out the episode. So, but I am going to ask okay. you this be, because- As many as you have, Joe. <laughs> yeah, so I have th three more questions, I guess. You know, I'm trying to make an excuse, but no, honestly, um, there are internal factors that affect culture and then there's external factors. And one of the disruptors right now is artificial intelligence. 
And mm-hmm. it, you don't have to have an answer for this because I don't know if there is one, but people were freaking out, and some are still, that you know AI is going to take over my job and it's going to eliminate the need for this or eliminate the need for that. Is AI disrupting workplace culture right now in some of the organizations that you're working with? I believe it's starting to. I think we're like at the tipping point. So it hasn't really disrupted these workplaces and cultures to a great extent, but it's only just begun. So I I don't know what it's going to look like a year or two from now. That's something we have to kind of get a hold of and and discuss. So it's not a disruption at this point, but it will be. and that's why it's so important for people who are creating the technology to look at it through an equity lens, uh, a DEIB lens. But yes, great question. I don't really have an answer, but it's not a big thing right now that's disrupting these organizations, but it, it probably will be. Well, let's start the insanity. It's it's going to happen. It is happening. Um, and it's going to be, you know, who uh, it's it's one of those things where. Um, and I see it all over social media all the time where it says AI won't replace your job, but somebody using AI might. And, you know, do we do we um, embrace AI in the areas that we can? Anyway, great place to work. It's an important organization. And um, we want to ask you final two questions. What did we not say about great place to work today that you want to say? Anything you want to leave us with? Another speaking opportunity you have coming up, initiatives you have going on? within the organization, anything you want to say, just, you know, take two minutes and plug anything about the organization. And then two, tell us what the future of workplaces is going to look like. Yeah, I think I'll start with the last one. What what would the future look like? So uh, don't quote me on the number, probably around 40% of the workforce is millennial at this point in time in the 40s. And our results show that probably by 20, 25, that's going to be up around 70%. And so <laughs> if you think in, t- in terms of just mo- the makeup of the workplace and the demographics, that's the particular group that's having the lowest workplace experience. And so if you have the majority of the folks having the worst workplace experience, and what are they saying? They feel like the leaders, are, you know, politicking is how things get done. Yikes! The, leader, the leaders uh, aren't competent in how they operate. Yikes. Those things are coming from this population. So I would say, understand the changing different demographics and what does that mean to the organization? And what does that mean to how we lead going forward? Because that, that's going to be a huge challenge for folks. Mm. Um, beyond that, from Great Place Work perspective, I would say, uh, you know, go to our website. There's plenty of information there. It's, uh, it's readily available. There's uh, best practices probably that you can use to make it a great place to work. And so this is our mission. This is our purpose. And we know how well we're doing this by how many companies actually get certified. And so I'm happy to say that as we speak, there's probably five plus million people around the world that are working within a great place to work. And our goal by 2030 is for everyone to be working in a great place to work. uh, Use our resources. we're all in this together. And so it's kind of a shared mission to make it a great place to work for people. Well, there you have it, um, ladies and gentlemen. First, Rich, I want to ask you what you thought about this conversation as my first time guest co-host. I well, I was very excited for this conversation with Tony. Um, I loved it. I love learning from you. And I think we all have, um, you know, a lot of good key action items from our conversation today. So thank you for having me, Joe. 
Anytime. You're always invited back now, Richard. You got through your first one, then the rest is cake, right? <laughs> you get the nerves out, and then we do these. But I do want to thank you, ladies and gentlemen. She's Richard Batra, and she is VP and General Manager at Anthology Conference coming up in July, I think. Isn't that the case, Richard? Yes, I'll see you there in Nashville. Well, I'll be there. You better believe it. And, of course, our guest today, he was ready. You heard him. He's Tony Bond. He's Chief Diversity and Innovation Officer at Great Place to Work. Tony, did you enjoy the conversation today? Did you have a good experience here on the podcast? Yeah, Joe, Richard Botra, I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for the great questions. And uh, I just, I'm very thankful to have an opportunity to be with both of you today. So thank you. Well, we're going to do everything we can to push the message of Great Place to Work through the higher ed community. If you want to reach out to Tony and find out what's going on you can catch them on linkedin i know because i just did this morning and you can go to the website great place to work and uh, all the information is there there's like a million resources on that site i started looking through all of them uh, it, it really is amazing and with that ladies and gentlemen you've just ed upped the alliance for innovation and transformation is an alliance of pace setters forward-thinking higher education ceos committed to leading by example to show other higher education institutions how to innovate and transform their organizations in the face of unprecedented challenge and change. They offer learning, development, and networking opportunities focused on customer-driven value, innovation, transformation skills, and techniques, and approaches to help colleges and other organizations achieve the long-term sustainability necessary for their survival. AFITHigherEd.com is where you can check them out. A-F-I-T, HigherEd.com. It's time to level up. The beginning of a new era in higher education begins with you. Order your copy of Commencement. The beginning of a new era in higher education by Kate Colbert, Dr. Joseph Lucio, with contributions by Elvin Freitas. It's higher education's must-read book of 2022. Discover how you can seize the moment to change higher education forever commencement the beginning of a new era in higher education now available on amazon for bulk orders contact kate joe or elvin 